0: Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the director of mythology at Houston Dynamo, Ben Bartlett. Ben, welcome to the show. Morning, Connor. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Ben, as we begin with every guest that comes on, I begin by asking what was their earliest football memory?
1: Um, probably school, primary school with my teacher. Uh, and I guess, like probably most people that have fallen in love with football. Uh, by his own admission he was a primary school teacher who had a love for football his football coaching ability was uh, I guess in in the way that many people would view coaches now was probably not at the top of the table Uh, but he was definitely an outstanding man in terms of the way that he engendered a love of sport of football and the way that he encouraged many of us to continue to fall in love with football and play positively so that set some nice foundations uh, and you know I'm still very fortunate sort of and many, many years on from that, but sort of nearly 30 years now working as a coaching developer. So
0: very fortunate. And in your own words, working nearly 30 years as a coach and developer, how would you first and foremost, Ben, describe the role of a coach?
1: Um, probably to try and support and help people to develop, to become better. Uh, and perhaps at times you can kind of end up with this dichotomy of you either develop or you win. Uh, and almost as if if you're working in a first team environment or in a senior environment where perhaps winning is perceived to be more important that you can sacrifice some of your development objectives because you need to win. Uh, I've come to understand that actually the two things live in harmony with each other, that um, you can pursue winning in a really positive way that supports development. And that, like all of us as coaches, the same for the players. Development isn't a journey that stops. When people reach adulthood, it's something that continues right the way through your life. And hopefully, as coaches, we can continue to take, to play parts in contributing positively towards people's lives.
0: And I think when it comes to youth coaching, Ben, it's fair to say like that tension and struggle between development and winning causes a lot of uneasy tension, right? Between coaching methodologies or going into different academies through Europe, North America, so on and so forth. I mean, when you speak about winning and development being able to exist habitually, I mean, were there any more earlier moments in your coaching career that informed us?
1: Yeah, I guess it's probably a th- there's probably a few things. Uh, I think the kind of uh, it's probably very difficult to develop players in a team that loses every single week, uh, particularly one that gets beat heavily every week. So there's certainly a, a relationship between ensuring that we can, as a team, retain comp- a level of competition that helps the players to feel a sense of success. But probably similarly, there isn't loads of development and benefit going on from a team that wins every single week and probably wins too easily every single week. And I've probably been fortunate in a couple of jobs um, where I've been in a job long enough to be able to see players that came into a program at 9, 10 or 11 that have then gone on and had a successful professional career and be able to reflect back on the sort of ups and downs that those players went through. Inevitably, they had seasons where they played in teams that were routinely not particularly successful and probably lost more games than they won, but retained enough level of competition that the players could kind of feel a sense of committing to some stuff that would enable them to get better. Um, but it's also important to say that probably when you reflect on a number of those players, they've also had seasons of success where they've got gone deep into tournaments, whether that was with their country or whether that was with their club, uh, where they've been towards the top end of a league table fighting for a league title, where they've been into the latter stages of knockout competitions Uh, And probably that sense of learning to play the game, like the tactics of dribbling or passing or pressing with three or building up with four or combined movements through midfield, whatever sort of technical and tactical things that we might consider probably need to be allied to the environmental conditions that those... techniques and tactics are contending with, which probably means for players to play deep into competition, means that they get to experience using those abilities under a sense of pressure. And probably if you've gone deep in competitions, playing against some of the better players, either in your age group or at the senior game that uh, perhaps uh, operate in either your league or across world football.
0: Refer to package this all together as a coaching philosophy, um, which you've spoken about before in previous podcasts. I mean, you've spoken about your huge love and admiration for dynamic systems theory and nonlinear learning. Could you elaborate a bit more upon both?
1: Yeah, um, I, I guess across an, a number of years, I found myself in tension with kind of this, the sanitised way that football can often be viewed, which is, I guess at the moment, we build up with a three and a two. Uh, or we press with two, uh, nine, 10 press. And, you know, uh, coaches will say, well, the best teams in the world are doing this. And you kind of like, well, they are, but also some of the weaker teams in the world are doing this as well. They're just not doing it as well at this particular moment in time. And I guess most people that fall in love with football that are energized by football, it's an emotional thing. It's an effective thing, which probably comes from being excited by the experience that you're involved in. And, um, So I guess as much as possible, we'd probably need to try and make sure that that experience is a positive and an entertaining one. And I guess in every sense, football is increasingly a spectator sport and the spectators have now got a number of choices, um, particularly with online activity, which means if people are going to tune in and stay watching the MLS or they're going to tune in and watch the Premier League, it probably needs to get them off their seat and it probably needs to excite them such that they'll come back to it. Um, And I guess sort of in in a long way of trying to get to the point, my sort of belief around coaching is that it should as much as possible revolve around the context that it functions within. Uh, that context will include the, the sort of cultural constraints of living in a city like Houston or developing in an area such as London, uh, which, bring, which bring completely different challenges, whether that's in terms of climate, whether it's in terms of the nature of the population, whether it's some of the things that those people inherently value. But then I think if you nest yourself down even deeper into that, individual players will then probably want to have themselves taken account of before we decide how to coach them. And I think from, I guess, a kind of methodological or a coaching perspective, what coaching can be guilty of is deciding something at the top, which is then rained down on everybody, regardless of what it is that those people might think is important to them. And as much as possible, dynamic systems theory just encourages people to take account of each individual person, the context they're operating within, and the other people that they're coming to contact with at any moment in time, which probably then means it's very difficult to map out learning in a traditional curriculum way. And my understanding of non-linear pedagogy is that you wouldn't necessarily say if it's a season programme, in September we're going to start by doing this, and then when we get to May we're going to have done that. And it's nicely, cleanly mapped out, perhaps like school curriculums have been in the past but that limits the opportunity for coaches and players to be able to adapt and respond as the things that are occurring in their life change. Uh, So as much as possible, take account of the cultural constraints of the community that you exist in and what's important there. And then as much as possible, try and take account of the individuals and ensure that any programme of coaching, any way that we set up the team to play, any playing style or philosophy is as much as possible attending to the things that those people think are important and enable them to contend with the challenges of the game of football.
0: Fantastic. And it would happen to say, I mean, like, obviously a big part of this, Ben, was informed by your own experience within the AFA. As a coach developer and subsequently now out in practice, I mean, and subsequently there, of course, have been put in practice. Um, twelve years at the FA. How form of an experience was that in your career at that point in time?
1: Um, yeah, incredibly. Um, and I was, I mean, I've been very lucky and hopefully continue to stay lucky. Um, but I was very lucky that it was two thousand and seven that I was employed by the association. Um. Trevor Brookin at that point was the director of football development and the association had gone through a big consultative exercise to find out from the game broadly, the professional game and the grassroots game. What what did people want from the FA in terms of the provision of the way players and coaches were developed? And it was probably a defining moment in the fact that people said they wanted more coaching and development programs that were responsive to children, as opposed to only being a one size fits all that largely was revolving around at the adult game. Uh, as much as possible, wanted that training and development to exist in their own context. So it was less about going to a central venue and more about people coming to support them. Uh, And also that people wanted to be excited by English players. They wanted to see English coaches function at the top of the game and for them to feel a sense of pride about the sort of identity, if you like, for want of a better term, that English football had. Um, And and I guess across that time, uh, the 12 years that I was there, you saw the change from... Trevor Brook into Dan Ashworth becoming head of football and then becoming a technical director, the inception of the DNA and a sort of evolution of formal awards like the Youth Award and qualifications that then became more of an identity and working through that really healthy tension of developing a DNA of the way we would want England teams to play whilst supporting the broader game, both professionally and into the grassroots game to understand what might be important to them. So it wasn't a DNA that just rained down on everybody. It was It This is how England teams are going to play. This is our identity. A club in the northeast of England or a club in the southwest of England might see inherent value in that, but they might not. But all it is, is saying this is what we stand for. What do you stand for? And then as much as possible, supporting players and coaches to really embed what's important to them and use it in such a way that they can be successful. Um, I think it's also important to say that alongside those things, it wasn't only the work that the FA were doing, the Premier League's EPPP programme was launched in 2012. St George's Park, even though some people will criticise it's just bricks and mortar and it was very expensive, also came into play in 2012. And there was almost this kind of perfect storm of the evolution that happened in the academy system, the work that the association did both broadly in player and coach development and more specifically with England teams, which hopefully has led to I guess, the success that you see from England national teams in recent years, uh, and also hopefully in some ways contributed positively to the development of many young English players that are driving strong market value, but also exciting many people with the way that they perform when they turn up on the pitch, but also seeing some really good, relatively young English coaches working at the top of the game, both in this country and in other countries, which hopefully has left a kind of sustainable legacy, which people can continue to build on.
0: Yeah, and that's something I'd like to bring up too. Indeed, you look at your own trajectory, you look at someone like Paul McGuinness, who's on this show a few weeks ago, look at the whole host of a whole litany of coaches, Ben, that you would have worked alongside to see the wonderful and great things they've gone on to. I mean, how important is it to have that or to be in that environment where the importance of allowing good ideas to incubate with good people? Yeah, it's, it's critical. And
1: I, I guess strategically the fa were very very good at drawing together people that come from many many different backgrounds uh, and enabling them to do good work and paul would be a really strong example of that and he's not the only example of that damage each would be another one there are many people that you could that you could name check um, which hopefully means the stuff that we said at the beginning about that risk of sanitizing by having many people that are the same is actually positively impacted by putting positive people into a building enabling them to work And leadership having a really strong sense of enabling that tension to be a positive thing rather than it being seen as a negative thing and that those ideas crackle, they fire, at moments they die, at moments they come to life a little bit more. Um, And from a personal perspective, being able to live that for a number of years and be around some, you know, some widely and wildly experienced people if you're open-minded enough, can't not knock on to the way that you think about the game, and hopefully continue to involve your own experiences and, and 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 I guess philosophies.
0: Fantastic, and it sounds like it was a proper bottom-up place in terms of like a real individualized, a heightened individualized uh, coach development process.
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, and again, that the association said those things were important, and it put its money where its mouth was because if you want to res- if you want to have an individually responsive program. It's going to be expensive because you need lots of boots on the ground that are going to go and work from the bottom up, that are going to go and work with coaches in their own setting, spend time with them, enable them to get better. Um, and I guess as much as possible, if you make that investment and you make it in the long term, coaches hopefully feel that these things aren't just fads. You get to see coaches develop over a longer period of time and you get to see them develop in league with their players, which can't not change the way that people then think about coach development, which is You know, in some senses, certainly my relatively early experiences in North America, coach development is still largely seen as an education. It's a suite of courses. I've got this qualification or I've done that. And on my qualification, I'm going to get taught these things, which is not misplaced. It's just a way of thinking about learning and development. I guess what the association and English football more broadly did quite successfully is to help people recognize that learning and development is more about each individual and the things that are important to them. Meeting them where they're at and supporting them along that journey. Uh, and then people hopefully then start to see no separation between their formal education and qualifying as an A-license or a pro-license coach and the way that they generally grow and develop alongside the players that they're working with at any moment in time.
0: And it's one thing, as you spoke about, they're doing the right thing and getting results. But what happens if you're doing the right thing inside that environment and you're not getting the results? I mean, has that happened to you before? And like how and if when do you maintain buy-in?
1: Yeah, and that that was probably, that's probably been my experience across all of my jobs where you have moments where you feel as if you're not necessarily banging your head against a brick wall, but that you're pushing really, really hard for positive change and don't necessarily see it. And I think the association experience was a really powerful one for that, that, you know, I worked there for 12 years. There were people that are still there that were there before me that have contributed really positively as well. Um, and I guess there's the element that at times when you're in the mire of things being really challenging and you can't see anything other than the challenge that you're facing, you don't necessarily see that the impact that it's having Uh, and a a wise man that I work with used to say like it's water on a stone, it's water on a stone, you just keep dripping, it just keeps dripping and actually over time, you don't actually see that the stone has changed because you're seeing it every single day, you don't necessarily see the evolution of those changes Um, but I think it's also important to say that leadership maintained a really strong sense of holding their nerve when things wobble a little bit because if you're going to say something's important and you're going to get behind it invariably people are going to throw mud at it people are going to throw punches at it people are going to try and break it apart either because of fear or because they sense that they might not be a part of what their future looks like or they don't necessarily sense that it aligns with the things that they believe in Um, and we, we were really fortunate with strong leadership which means when the wheels were falling off and Either I had personally really difficult days or times, the organisation had difficult times at at competitions or through some of the feedback that we received on certain elements of the programme. The leadership was, no, this is where we're going. We keep going. We don't just blindly keep going. We constantly reflect on and refine what we're doing, but we've set a destination and we're going towards it. And I guess in some senses, significant cultural change of that nature. If it happens in three or four months, it probably isn't sustainable anyway. It's something that's going to take a long-term commitment that people need to be wed to for some period of time.
0: Of course. And, I mean, zooming it all back, Ben, I mean, a big part, obviously, of your work being the constraints-led approach, so much so that you ordered a book on it. I mean, you have published a new book in the... Not, I think it was only since December, wasn't it, Ben? Yeah. You published a new book, yeah. Connected coaching back only in December. I mean, was it always the plan to... Um, author that next book or was that cross-pollinated and straight coaching did it stem from the feedback received on the last book
1: yeah probably not so much of the first one and more of the other ones um i mean the, the publisher um initially contacted me back in i think lockdown i think it was about january 2021 And said, had I ever thought of writing a book, he'd been through some of the articles, short form articles that I'd written for Elite Soccer and for other journals. And said he thought there was a book in there. And I said, I don't think I could, I don't think I've got enough content to write a book. Moreover, nor do I think anybody would buy it. Uh, And in his infinite wisdom, he sort of coached me into what that would look like. We spent six months piecing it together um, and it it completely surpassed any sense of success that that, um, I thought it might have um but from a personal development perspective it was really helpful in terms of being able to organize and piece together the the way that you think about coaching and some of the experience that you've given in such a way that hopefully somebody else can make some sense of it um and then for the second book um the publisher said well let's just start writing a series of monthly articles and then join it together as a book which was a really nice exercise in terms of being able to again piece together separate things and make them into a second book and um yeah, that's that. that's also been been a, um, a successful publication. And I'm certainly I think I'm empty now in terms of being able to write any more books. Um, and I'm also conscious that the first book, Constraining Football, was like from a personal philosophical perspective, was quite an important thing to put out there. And regardless of whether they stop selling books and it never ever lands on anybody's mat ever again from a personal perspective, it's been a really good exercise to be able to put some of those things out there and put a line in the sand about this is what we did and this is why it might have been important.
0: I'd imagine it's quite an epiphany, authoring and publishing one book, but to do it twice must be some sort of a life-changing experience, really. Um.
1: Yeah, I, I guess the probably more from the first book perspective, Uh, what was probably quite overwhelming was just the feedback that you get of the impact that some of the people think it it has had on them. And I guess going back to some of your previous questions at moments when we were trying to instill principally a constraints led approach to coaching and coach development through the association, there were times where we were being punched quite hard about the fact that this didn't work. It was stupid. It was academic. It was this, it was that. Uh, And I guess like you alluded to before in those moments, you can think that because a minority or a number of people hold that view, but that means that that is the universal view that everybody holds. And maybe actually you're pursuing the wrong thing. you're pushing an idea which has no traction or holds no inherent value to anybody. Um, and I think feedback from a book like that where people saying, this has really helped me. I've never thought of it like that. I'm really interested in this. It's enabled me to go and explore some stuff further. um' has been really powerful, and I guess probably like you, I've been on the opposite end of that where I've read somebody else's book and it's had a really life-changing impact upon the way that I think about my practice as a consequence.
0: Mm, And I I just even think from the perspective piece as a coach too, right? Being able to kind of, or zoom back out and understand that it's a whole development process, like there's no one fixed destination.
1: Yeah, completely. Um, And I I guess like into my current job, that's kind of one of the things that you you try and work at Uh, I think one of the things that's kind of surprised me a little bit, both about myself and about the environment that I function at the moment is having worked in England for a number of years. I guess you kind of come to believe that most places are seeing coach and player development principally in a similar way to we built in England, um, which has been very, very different. And I guess what's been really fascinating and at times a little bit bumpy has been trying to help people to understand that this is a long term process. But we need to make some strong commitments now that are going to enable us to work through those things in the future and to recognise that we may take some short term losses to generate some long term gains. But What we commit to now is going to largely reflect what happened in a year's time. What we commit to now will largely impact upon what happens in five years time and trying to see that as, like you say, not necessarily a destination, but just a long term commitment, which you capture people's buy in and take things forward positively as a consequence.
0: Of course, it takes me in nicely to my next question, which is um, having read Connected Coaching, the last chapter. It has a great title. The map is not the territory. And you had one great quote inside when you speak about learning needs, reconsidering and reconceptualizing. For many of us, learning has become about remembering, recalling and retaining. Where do you find that disbelief stems from?
1: Um, In part, probably from my own experience at school um and whilst i didn't necessarily dislike school or do really badly at school i definitely found myself overly constrained by some of the systems um and my coach education like when i was going through my formal qualifications my coach education experience was principally not a lot different i recall being expected to deliver particular sessions in a particular way to enable you to get a particular tick in the box um and the sense of tension that that generated about needing to perform on a given day and get things right as someone else would expect them to see rather than being a better reflection of myself, um, which uh, I guess has sort of been burrowed within me for a number of years. And I guess the work that we did was an opportunity to try and unpick it, unpick some of that and hopefully find some alternative ways to enable people to think about learning. Uh, and hopefully by conceptualising it in that way, if people want to work in a way that they need to recall or retain, if they can. It's not wrong. It just isn't universally right. It isn't the only way of being able to do it because people been have to remember and repeat stuff at moments in time might be important, but that's probably just a relatively narrow way to think about learning. Not dissimilar from a relatively narrow way to think about football is to say that we play a four, two, three, one, and the right back comes inside and the left back goes on and we build with a deep three. I guess as much as possible, it's trying to ensure that the game retains as much breadth and depth as possible that enables people to experience it in their own way and hopefully means that there's so much variety and difference going on that people continue to connect with it and be excited by it.
0: Of course, and it's this live and and exchange between the relationship, between the player, between the coach, between the environment. And you find what you just spoke about there in retaliation to my question in terms of it, more often than not, it's just a lack perhaps of even self-awareness on the coaches part or the clubs part over the environment and over the context. And again, you look at all these job posters, football clubs would be putting up and big mission brand statements. As we spoke about off air about the, about that little piece about vision and strategy. You know, you take away the strategy from the vision and the mission statement and the fact that it's just empty promises and people lose faith pretty quickly.
1: 100%. Um... And I guess not everybody, but at times the game can become really mired in the reads very, very quickly. They go into the detail of what system we should use and how we should use the right back before they've actually understood what things might fundamentally be important. Because once you've decided what's important, every single strategy that you adopt and every single tactic that you employ should as much as anybody possibly can align with the things that's important, which means if you choose to play with a four, two, three, one with a right back that comes inside to build a base of three, fantastic, because that's what aligns with the things that you've said are important. If you nailed straight down to the tactics without necessarily understanding what's already important, then perhaps you're going to end up further down the line not really knowing why you're doing what you're doing. It just seemed like a vogue or sensible idea at that particular moment in time.
0: I mean, and as a consequence of this, a positive consequence of all of this, Ben. Obviously, you rose up the ladder pretty promptly, pretty quickly as well, and you've evolved into leadership positions. Going from coaching and management to more formalized leadership position, how have you, in fact, had to evolve and better your own skill set?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question that I've had to think about quite a lot, certainly in the last few years. Um, And I still, I guess, internally fight with the idea of much of my work has been pushing against leadership has been pushing against the kind of i guess the standardized way that things have been done um and at times that's probably inhibited me from being able to be in a leadership position because i would be seen as perhaps a a disharmonious voice to whatever it is that's trying to be done and i guess i'm still trying to work through that to demonstrate enough disharmony in such a way that you can take stuff forward but not be seen as a destructive voice that shouldn't ever be in a leadership role Uh, and I still definitely don't get that right every single time I guess it's trying to ensure that you push for positive change whilst enabling and supporting other people to drive some of that change themselves.
0: And are there any particular leaders industries or organizations in fact that you're indeed studying right now and drawing inspiration from? Um, I wouldn't say there are particular
1: people that I draw inspiration from that I go looking for Uh, there's probably two things that as much as possible you try to just watch how people operate and try to have a deeper understanding of them as much as possible and then try and adopt whatever tactics and strategies I've got to as much as possible to respond to those people as much as possible and I think the second thing that I try to do I guess like many coaches is just to read and to listen as much as you possibly can to try and pick stuff from outside of something that's perhaps perceived to have no real connection to football coaching or the development of football but hopefully can provide some small snippet of insight that will enable us to, to be a little bit better Um, at at the risk of it being a a bit, a bit sort of corny. um, I guess something that's landed with me over a number of years, it was introduced to me as a principally as a concept when I was going through a master's degree many years ago is kind of Bruce Lee's quote, which is about absorb absorb what is useful, disregard what is isn't, add what is uniquely your own. Um, and I guess when you then start to study some of the stuff that he did and some of the ways that those things function, hopefully it enables you to take a keen sense of what's already going on in that environment that's important there, uh, add a taste of your own, but also disregard the stuff that perhaps isn't helping things to progress. So uh, I, um, I guess he was a leader in his own field, um, but uh, and I'm not suggesting that I know deeply his work, but those sort of things, I guess, have resonated with me in some senses.
0: And speaking of Bruce Lee, I mean, utilising that course, looking at your... Last move now to Houston Diamond, you've been there at the helm, seven, eight months. I mean, how's the move gone? And in fact, what have you integrated from your own approach?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's been fascinating. Uh, the la- the early part of the role here, the sort of first two stroke three months were the off-season. Um, the club historically, the first team historically have been relatively low in the league. they finished last or the finished one above last in most of the recent seasons. Um So there's a big drive between changing the culture and building what the club would say is a sustainable success. So developing young players throughout the academy as well as developing a first team that can win. And I guess that period of the off-season, we spent a significant period of time looking at what is the difference between the clubs that finish on the bottom of the playoffs, so finish fifth, sixth and seventh historically, and clubs that are outside. One of the big bits was set-piece. A set-piece differential was minus eleven whereas the clubs that were on the fringes of the set pieces, their set piece goal differential was eight, nine and ten goals less. So a big focus on trying to be defensively more compact and have greater attacking output on those set pieces, but also recognising that you may generate more attacking free kicks, you may generate more attacking corners if you spend more of the time higher up the pitch, whether that's through use of the ball or whether that's through the way that you press. Um, I guess the second thing that we're seeking to do is to try and recognise that Each team may have some underlying principles that support the way that they play, but they'll hopefully have some inherent difference based upon either the individual objectives for that team or the nature of some of those players. So as much as possible, we're trying to profile the critical players in any given team, find roles for them in that team that take account of their strengths and enable them to bring those strengths to the fore for the team, and hopefully sort of move towards, you know, one of the guys that I work with at Fulham, Um, did a really nice chart that worked towards we had principles of wanting to have more possession than the opposition and to press high but the systems of play some of the tactics that the teams use would be different Uh, and he just used an xy axis that showed where we were for possession and where we were for pressure first team 23s 18s were positioned in the same part of the xy axis chart But if you looked at them play, some of the systems that they use, some of the ways that the players were deployed and some of the ways that they both stopped, started attacks and score goals were fundamentally quite different. And I guess it was just that recognition that we probably want to have something that holds us together. So if people say, what does what do Houston Dynamo stand for? We stand for this. And if you watch the teams and the players play, there's some relatively distinct, clear distinctions about what those things are but also that you see some inherent difference, which hopefully means that the individual natures of the players and the coaches can be accounted for. And I guess that's the process that we're working through at the moment. Like we said, off air is trying to ensure that we can set teams up to win, but also ensure that we can support player development in the
0: medium to longer term. Of course. And then, I mean, zooming back out again, looking at the medium to long term, where do you see the game of football evolving over the next decade or so, Ben, and the coach's role within it?
1: Yeah. Um, I guess where it goes in the next 10 years will probably be a reflection of what we do today and what we do tomorrow. Um, And I guess like we've spoken about a bit, you kind of see that and it emerges online quite a bit. You kind of see that dichotomy at the moment, that tension between teams that are structurally very sound, very template-like, that look the same, that you could pretty much throw a hat on their players 50 times during the game and they'd be positioned in relatively similar positions versus watching some other teams, some of the South American teams, even watching Real Madrid at times, where it's much freer, it's much looser, people are responding with each other. Um, And as much as possible, I'd like to see the future, seeing those two things contending with each other, because I think when you get structure, someone needs to find something different that's going to break that structure apart, because then as a consequence, that structure will need to co-adapt to try and ensure that that freedom is stopped in its own way. And hopefully as much as possible, we'll just end up with this continual healthy tension. Hopefully, coaches' role within that is ensuring that the players are as equipped as they possibly can to deal with whatever it is the game that presents to them. And even though coaches are very much lauded and they're very much seen on the side of the pitch, as much as possible for the coaches to retreat even further into the background and allow the
0: players to be the kings and queens of the game. That'll be something else to see, a sight to behold. Um, Ben, as we begin to wrap up, I always ask, the guest one final question. And for you, it's no different. And that would be, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give someone who'd wish to thread a similar path to yourself?
1: Um, I I suppose the things that have probably helped me are finding what it is that your niche is uh, and ploughing it pretty resolutely. Um, I, I guess there's nothing wrong with aspiring to be like other people but probably also recognise what it is that's going to stand you out from other people, that's going to enable you to find a foothold that people might recognise and hopefully see some value and positively contributing to, to them. So, yeah, I guess like your question before about who do you look up to, who do you whose leaders do you take inspiration from, always be looking around and see what happens, but also
0: deeply understand yourself and what it is that's going to help you to succeed. Great advice to close. Ben, it's an absolute pleasure to have had you. Thanks, Connor. Thanks for having me.